You know, the longer you stand, the less chance I have to speak, so sit. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, great to be here in Perth. Great to see all of you. Thank you so much for coming out. It's uh, been a wonderful time here in Australia. Thank you for fighting your way through the noodled armed protesters out there. I think you were okay getting through. Uh, you seem like a pretty burly and strengthy lot, so I appreciate that. Thank you so much. So I'm going to talk about Australia. And I'm going to use the research, the information that I gathered together about the relationship between the Europeans, 17th century onwards, and the Aborigines to talk about the West, philosophy, postmodernism, the end of guilt, and the survival of everything we have worked so hard to achieve as a civilization, as a culture, throughout the century, throughout the millennia, really, at this point. So I may uh, toss a little bit of back and forth because I'm available on YouTube. I want it to be a little bit more interactive, participative, and so on. So uh, feel free to chime in. Uh, as you see fit or as I ask, I would appreciate that too. So let's get started. Now, I believe, and I've said openly many, many times, the West is the best. Yeah. Now, as a philosopher, that has to be, for me, more than just, yay, my team, yay, my magic soil, yay, my flag, my song, my mode of dress. As a philosopher, the reason why the West is the best is doubt. Doubt. How do we get to the truth of the world? Well, we have to recognize that the truth is not currently where we are. That's the only way we can get there. There's a story in ancient Athens. So uh, uh, it was Aristotle there was this amazing, immense question that we know from being children back in ancient Athens, which is, what is going on with these tides? They literally could not figure it out. Aristotle used to stand down at the beach, and he actually would fall to his knees and scream in frustration because he could not figure out what was going on with the tides. Now, every other culture in the world, they had this answer that they were certain about. We know what's going on with the tides. It's magic. <laughs> now, magic may be a satisfying answer in the moment, but it doesn't really get you very far. It was all like the, the, the sea gods are doing something. What? Magic. But as Aristotle had to sit with that annoying, we've all had that, you know, like a, a question that you have in your brain that is like, it's bugging you and it's bugging you and we all want to do this magic answer and the West is the best because we don't accept magic fundamentally as the answer to things. We doubt. Where is our position in the universe? Well, there's an old story that says, I can't remember, I think in India or something, some some cosmology which was, where's the world's position in the universe? Well, it's on the back of an elephant. I'm sure it was an elephant with like 50 arms and swords, you know, it's India, right? Then the next question, of course, well, what's the elephant on? Well, you see, the elephant is on the back of a tiger. What's the tiger on? The tiger is on the back of a turtle. What's the turtle on? No, no, no. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> Magic. Right? So we've got these annoying questions, and we're willing to say, we don't know. Now, when you say you don't know, that's the possibility that you have to figure out a methodology that can have you actually know something. Do you know how recent it is in the history of humanity that we've actually had a methodology 
that gives us the chance to know something for real? Humanity, what, 150,000 years old? 300,000 if you look at it in 4K. And, sorry, that's an internet joke, bad age. But anyway, 150,000 years, you could say ancient Athens, uh, Aristotle was very good with, with science, but really Francis Bacon, 16th, 17th century onwards, 150,000 years, we've had a couple of hundred years where we can actually know something and know that we know it and know that all the other explanations are false and that this is true and it's really, really, really recent and it took thousands of years to get to that place where we could know something and be certain of it. And it only happened because of doubt. The agony of doubt that leads to the, not just the peace of certainty, but the productivity of certainty. You know the old saying, the old statement, nature, we know this one, nature to be commanded must be obeyed. That's how you gain power over the universe, is crossing the, the canyon, the chasm of doubt. And that's the West. Nobody else has even come close. Even with the example of the West, nobody has come close. You know, they say it costs, you know, 20 bucks to make some pill. No, 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 no. It costs like $10 billion to make the first pill. The second pill, that's a whole lot easier. It's the same thing with figuring out what works in society. What works in society? Free markets, free speech, equality under the law, freedom. You know, we kind of wrote it down. It's not copyrighted. Other civilizations, other cultures, we're not going to sue you. Do it. Be free. No, because we're certain and we're wrong. And that's really frustrating. You ever have people in your life? They're absolutely certain and they're totally wrong. And this happens all the time. And I look at the world, at cultures. There are cultures that are absolutely certain and totally wrong. Now, one of those cultures I found out. See, I, was gonna, I knew I wanted to talk about Australia. So I sort of said, let's start at the beginning. So you go back 40,000 years, and you can skip a bit. <laughs> I'm sorry, like it's true. <laughs> 40,000 years, all right. Ooh, a lot of history here. No written language. No wheel. No two-story buildings. No pants. That's the one part I like. <laughs> and you just keep going and going, right? And it's not a lot. It's like Groundhog Day in hell. <laughs> Do you guys have groundhogs in Australia? I don't even know if that goes over as a, as a comment. <laughs> but you know the movie, right? OK. All right. I'm waiting for one guy to stick his head up at the back. We have groundhogs. Go back down again. <laughs> If you don't know Groundhogs, that joke doesn't work either. All right, that's zero for two. All right, no more jokes. <laughs> so I did want to look into the Aborigine culture. <sighs> because we, we, I don't know, did you guys grow up with this noble savage stuff? You know, it's, it's all over the media, right? Like dances with wolves and all that. It's all these, you know, we live at one with nature. We use every part of the buffalo, which is not true even remotely, but we live at one with nature. <laughs> it's like camping forever with no technology at all. So I grew up with this noble savage stuff, I guess like, like everyone else, where you say, wow, you know, I got a lot of taxes to do. Boy, that, that noble savagery starting to look pretty good <laughs> right about now. <laughs> I don't like that other guy. Noble savage, I didn't. Could do something right there. Boy, pretty nerve-wracking to ask that girl out. Noble savage. <laughs> <laughs> we are married. 
Um, so yeah, I started to look into it. Now, this is going to be a bit of an aggregation, so there's some regional differences, but actually not as many as I was thinking. So I started to look into, and, and so one of the first things I found was a myth, right? Which is a polite word for false. So do you remember when you were a kid, like the first time you saw stars, or the first time you, you, know, you noticed that there was this big giant, like these lights, this big giant ball in the sky? And you're like, wow, I wonder what that is, right? And we all have these questions, and all cultures have these answers to these questions, but only one culture has the right answer or the right methodology. So they look at the sun, and they say, well, what is the sun? And I found that there's this fairly common myth in the Aborigine culture. Anyone know it? Anyone just out of curiosity? You? All right. Okay, good. Don't, don't spoil the ending. It's magic. <laughs> That's the ending. It's wrong. And they still believe it, and they won't change. So the story is that there was a crane and an emu, and they were fighting over an egg. And the crane took the emu egg, threw it into the sky, where it exploded into fire and stayed as fire. And everyone was like, wow, this is cool. Because before, you see, we had to live by the light of the moon. See, there's your first clue. <laughs> the moon has no light. So without the sun, you don't get the moonlight. <laughs> and then the gods, or the ancient ones, the up there guys, they were like, wow, that's really cool. We should do this every day. So they decided they, get, they would gather their wood in heaven or up in the sky. They'd gather their wood, and they'd set fire to it and light it, and then you'd get the sun. But the, and they would do that because they saw the morning star. Now, the problem is, if it's cloudy, apparently, the gods can't see the morning star. So what happened was the kookaburra bird had to call out. Now, just out of curiosity, is there anyone in the audience here who's really good at imitating the kookaburra bird? I won't do it because I'm amplified and you've got eardrums to protect. Anyone? <laughs> that sounded like the death scene of the kookaburra bird, you know. <laughs> Mama, I'm seeing the light. Anybody else? Give me a vivid, energetic kookaburra bird. Oh, now that's, that's good. That's commitment. Anyone else? Oh, I actually feel like mating with that. <laughs> so the kookaburra bird would remind the gods, wake them up. So then, you see, the aborigines said, it is now forbidden, forbidden to imitate the call of the kookaburra bird. You're in trouble. I just, I just drew you into a blasphemy. Because you see, if you imitate the call of the kookaburra bird, the kookaburra bird will become offended, will not call out, and then it's eternal darkness forever and ever and ever. So, no, no free speech as far as that goes. Now that obviously is a belief and a wrong belief and a false belief but they're certain of it. I was talking to a local, I don't know if this story is true or apocryphal, but camels, camels not native to Australia except the cigarettes, and camels were brought to carry water, some mining town, I assume, and then the mining town ran out, the gold ran out, so they just you know, kicked the camels loose. And within 10 to 20 years, the indigenous population had a whole crazy backstory about why the camels were there. Two guys merged together, the gods did this and that and the other, and they were certain of it. By golly, the ancient ones had told them that the camel was, you know, whatever, right? And then people came and said, no, they were brought across in ships, and here's the, you know, no! <laughs> All right, stay with your certainty. So you have a culture, the West, which has doubt, which will not be satisfied with magic as the answer, or socialism, actually no, socialism, well, we'll get to that, all right. 
so we have a culture which is doubtful and a culture which has certainty, 150%, no doubt, that according to the Aborigines, the world was created from a giant, vast, featureless plain, like the literacy of a leftist. <laughs> and then they, the, the ancient ones fell asleep and, and they live under the rocks and mountains. And there's totemism and animism, right? So animism is, is everything has a soul, everything is alive, everything has a presence and a being and so on. And the ancient ones gave the average. Was that a heckle? No. I'm never sure if the voices are coming from there or here or who knows what. <laughs> See? That's doubt. Which hopefully will lead to certainty. And so there was the, the ancient ones gave the rules, you know, a ban on incest and, and some other, you know, don't blaspheme, no kookaburra bird thing. And they gave these rules. And one foundational aspect of this whole worldview of the Aborigines is called the dreaming or the dream time is it can't ever be changed. It can't ever, ever, ever be changed. It is certain, it is written, it is absolute, and doubt is not allowed, which is why free speech is not allowed. Now, I have no doubt that over the 40,000 plus years that the Aborigines lived in Australia, that they had erupting from time to time, as happens in all societies, I believe, throughout the world, throughout history, you have the geniuses, up they come, like the aforementioned gophers. And every culture has a different relationship to the people who ask uncomfortable questions, right? I guarantee you everyone in this room is one of those people, so we all know what I'm talking about. What is the cultural relationship to people who ask uncomfortable questions, to people who have doubts? I mean, in Japan, there's sayings, you know, like it's, it's the tall poppy that gets cut down. It is the, it's the nail that sticks up, gets hammered down, like if you step out of the conformity line, right? And in the Aborigine culture, these people would pop up and they'd say, I don't know, man. Why can't the gods see the morning star? They're gods. <laughs> I mean, can they really be gods if they can't see through a cloud? Go on, ask one more question. <laughs> Actually, probably didn't even get that far, right? So the people who had doubts about how things should be. There were punishments for breaking these rules, these laws, and they were severe. If a woman was accused of breaking the law in some Aborigine cultures, she was offered a choice you can be killed or the elders can drag you out into the bush and you will have to submit to mass rape. It's uh, harsh and ugly and unpleasant and vicious. If a man was found to be in breach of some rule, then he would have to stand there and, and they would throw spears at him and, and if he dodged them, he was innocent. It's still better than the probe of Trump and Russia, but at least they have a chance to dodge them. And, and people would lose their legs, they would die. And this is similar to in the Middle Ages in, in Europe. There was this trial by fire. I don't know if you know where this trial by fire comes from. Uh, you, you would have to pick up a red-hot piece of metal, and you'd have to walk three paces, and then you'd drop it, obviously. And if your wound healed, then you were innocent of whatever charge it was. And eventually they figured out that was wrong, destructive, immoral, and so on. And they came up with all the modern systems of jurisprudence. So these people would emerge from time to time in our Aborigine culture, as they do all over the world, and they would have questions, and they would have doubts, and they'd say, eh, how do we know? I feel uneasy because this certainty does not rest with me. I can't just stick it on me like a tattoo and pretend that it's all true. And what happened to these people? Now, in the West, we've had an uneasy relationship with those who ask uncomfortable questions. Me, you, everyone here, a lot of your friends. We've had some people outside, of course, who are probably believe in the noble savage because they're inhabiting the myth while exhibiting the reality, which is brutality. <laughs> so the people who asked the uncomfortable questions in the Aborigine culture were probably killed. 
they would be killed either physically or genetically, right? How do you kill someone genetically? You can ask that if you want. Sorry? No sex. No sex. All right. No sex. You ostracize women don't sleep with whatever, right? So that's how you deal with people who ask uncomfortable questions. So what you get out of that process where we have lies that are considered to be the physics of reality and anybody who questions those lies gets killed, you get certainty. And you get stasis, stagnation. Nothing changes, nothing grows, nothing evolves. Anybody who steps out of line gets killed. So the line never changes direction, never grows, never alters. The price of certainty is stagnation. And we all have this in our lives, right? We, we all fight this certainty, oh, I'm certain about this, and I don't know, can't even tell you the number of things I've been absolutely certain about. And then, next thing you know, facts, damn. It's painful, right? It's, it's, until you get used to that methodology and you say truth is not something you get to. Truth is something you continue to pursue. Truth is not a conclusion. Truth is the process of, of and this is why free speech and conversation, no one has a monopoly. We've all got to discuss and reason and test everything that we believe so that we can get closer and closer to truth, which is a continual process. And it takes a certain amount of maturity and a certain amount of deferral of gratification, right? It's painful to question your deepest assumptions, even your middle deepest assumptions. But we know that on the other side of that questioning is truth, and it's worth it. It sucks, but it's worth it, you know? So, so that's what we do. Now, in the 18th century in Australia, you have the collision of these two cultures. You have a culture that is indigenous to Australia, that is certain and is wrong, and has lived with that certainty and that wrongness for tens of thousands of years. And you have another culture that has an uneasy relationship with its questioners, with its Plato's, with its Socrates's, with its Spinoza's, with its St. Augustine's, you name it, with its Francis Bacon's, with its Copernicus's, and so on. It doesn't always kill them, a lot, but not always. And that's, that's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. A lot, yes, okay. Who, who can tell me? Give me some names of free thinkers, men and women, history. <clears throat> Socrates, Galileo was tortured. Did he die? He was tortured. I don't know. Was he killed by the church? I don't think he, he, I think he was tortured but not killed, imprisoned. Jesus Christ. Amen. Sorry? Tony Abbott? I, I don't know that wish fulfillment is where we want to go at the moment, but um, anybody else? Come on, you guys got an... Sorry? Archimedes. Archimedes, yeah. Who else? Senegal. Yeah. Tommy Robinson. Who? Tommy Robinson. Tommy Robinson. Wow, that's uh, hanging by a thread, right? Anyone who's pissed off the Clintons. <laughs> I, I can't confirm or deny that, I'm afraid. <laughs> because I don't want to, anyway, you understand. <laughs> so we do have this uneasy relationship, and you can see this mob at the moment, right? This mob on the internet, this mob on Twitter, this mob, right, just smash, smash, smash people who ask uncomfortable questions. You can see this in the media that's going on, right? Lauren was talking about this earlier, and, and you know, like, I, I'd hate that guy they're writing about <laughs> in the media. It's just, you know, it's projection, right? So... You had this collision, these two cultures. One that allows doubt, one that does not allow doubt. And it is important to look at the Aborigine culture, I think, learn from it, respect the lessons that it has for us. Because there is this odd synchronicity between the left and this noble savage stuff. There's two interesting things that struck me when looking at the Aborigine culture. The first is that they basically had a welfare state, which is that you had to share everything. You got extra food, someone's hungry, you have to share, no matter what. Now, that's interesting because that also retards the development of increased intelligence. So, as you know, in sort of where we all come from, sort of Europe and, and so on, there were these horrible winters. 
And I'm not talking about like every five minutes in Perth, it seems, but like ones that last for, for quite a long time. And, you know, the crab about winter is if you don't plan, you don't make it. If you're greedy, if you've got enough food to last you through March in November and you eat it all in January or by January, you're not going to do well, right? You might starve to death. And so those who could not defer gratification, those who could not plan, those who could not do the calculus and so on, well, they didn't make it. And that meant, of course, that there's this slow increase in intelligence over time. If you don't have private property, it's very hard to progress as a society because those who plan more, those who are better, those who hunt more, who hunt better, who plan, like, they just don't get more resources to have more kids, and, and so you just end up with this continual stagnation. So number one, they were socialists. Number two, the dreaming, this, this metaphysical relationship they had with reality, it forbade the alteration of their environment. That's part of the animism as well, like the everything has a soul, everything has a spirit, which meant no agriculture. Agriculture, who here has a little farm or a plot of land, you grow, grow stuff in your environment? Okay, given where the economy's going, you might want to look into it a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. But um, there, there's a story of, a, it's, this is more, this is recorded in history that there was an Aborigine who came up to a Fijian missionary who was tending the garden, right? And it's incredible. I got like a 12 by 13 patch at home. It's insane how much food you can grow. You know, we eat a lot of vegetables. We can't eat them all. We got to hand them out like Aborigines. And um, the Aborigine comes up to the Fijian missionary and says, what are you doing all this crazy work for? We, we don't have to do any of this stupid stuff. The nature, the ancient ones, they just handed out this stuff like candy. We don't have to do anything. What are you, stupid? Ridiculous. I don't know. I mean, I, you're naked. Nothing's changed in 40,000 years. You spend five hours a day trying to get 2,000 calories. You're so malnourished that according to the skeletons that have been unearthed, up to 80% of children had two to three stall lines in their growth, which means severe malnutrition. The majority of the Aborigine bands, there's bands, tribes, chieftains, and, and then finally nation states, 30 to 50% of the Aborigine children were killed infanticide. 30 to 50%. Abortion was very common. They would eat herbs. They would tie ropes or whatever they used around their bellies, the women who were pregnant, and slowly tighten them. They'd pound their bellies with rocks. And how would the babies be killed? Well, they'd be left behind when they moved camp. Therefore, slow starvation, exposure, thirst, or dingoes, I suppose. I'm not going to say the line. You've heard it, You've heard it too many times. Oh, I want to, though. Should I? No, no. Should I? Oh, come on. Dark side, light side. This side of the room is so nice. And you're like, do it. Do it. Dingo ate my baby. Thank you. That's still acting less over than Meryl. Anyway. Um, or, or they would beat the baby's head against the rock. Or they would fill the baby's mouth with sand so that it would asphyxiate, of course, and 30 to 50 percent. So I got to tell you, if I'm in a culture where anybody who asks any questions get killed, I'm wandering around naked, uh, you know, up to half my babies are being killed, there's lots of abortions going on, women regularly getting raped for disobeying orders, and then some incredible group of human beings sail up in this giant ship and they have bang sticks and, and food, <laughs> and, and they can see, because vision problems are huge in the Aborigine community, and they can hear, because significant numbers, even now, of Aborigine children, through neglect, through bad hygiene, through endless secondhand smoke, they're huge hearing problems. These people come along, I'm not sure I'd be lecturing them about how stupid they were. You know, like if some spaceship landed right here, right now, 
People came down, you know, they could moonwalk through time and do all kinds of like amazing stuff. I wouldn't be, I got a cell phone, you guys are idiots. You know, like, just have some humility. Maybe you got something to learn, but you've got nothing to learn because you're perfect and you're wrong. Now, philosophically speaking, it doesn't matter to me who's killing the Aborigine children. Because I'm not racist. So can you imagine if the Europeans were killing 30 to 50% of the Aborigine children? Not that infant mortality was, oh, accident. No, killing. If 30 to 50% of the Aborigine children were being killed by the Europeans, everybody would go crazy, and rightly so, because it's wrong. But if the Aborigines are doing it to themselves, that's a culture you must respect. That is insane. And it takes severely demented postmodernism to hang these two opposite thoughts together. That if, because uh, you know this stolen generations, is that the phrase? Right there you, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, so what is it, 6% uh, of the kids were taken out and, and it was under the same rules as they would be taken out of white families because of abuse and neglect and sexual abuse in particular. So 6% of children were taken out of highly abusive environments and you never hear the end of it. And the same things happen in Canada, by the way. But 30 to 50% of the babies were being killed. You understand there's no yardstick by which you can make that a sane equation that you only focus on the 6% who were taken out out of abuse, but not the 30 to 50% who were killed by their own parents often. And this is what we're, is supposed to be so terrible. Because the left is wild, wild, feral, ignoble savages. Because the left says it's terrible to strip people of their history and of their pride. So down go your statues, Europeans. Down go any sense of pride you might have in your culture and in your civilization. We have to respect people who believe that dust has a soul. But we cannot ever let people who saved humanity, who ended slavery, who invented science, modernity, the free market, equality under law, they can't have any pride. But the people who mass-raped women killed 30 to 50% of their own children in the most brutal ways possible, that must be respected. Europe and North America, asterisk not including Mexico, <laughs> from 800 BC to 1950 AD, were responsible for what percentage of scientific progress? in the world. Did you say 100? Look, you're certain, and you're wrong, and you're wrong. 98%, 98%. There is no modern world without Europe, without whites. There is no modern world. We have enough access to give huge amounts of foreign aid to Africa, we have enough technological expertise to give them cell phones, because otherwise, how are they going to have the money and the GPS to find their way to Europe? <laughs> Look how well we share. <laughs> because we have this. Um, Universality. Universality is our thing, right? That um, reason and evidence, the rule of law, ethics, the non-aggression principle, all the various things that we talk about in the West, we consider them universal, which is one of the ways that we have helped the world so much. Humanity has lasted for 150,000 years. Of those 150,000 years, all but a few hundred have had universal enslavement, slavery, slavery. Slavery, all throughout history, all across the world. One group and one group only ended slavery. Not just in their own countries, not just in their own empires. They spent untold amounts of blood and treasure to end slavery worldwide. World, 
white until the Clintons and the Obamas screwed up <laughs> Libya, and now you have open-air slave markets where you can buy a human being for $400. Good job, progressives. One group and one group alone, white European Christians, ended the worldwide practice of slavery. What is the one group that now is only ever and forever blamed for slavery? There you go. Now you're certain and correct. <laughs> I was begging the question a bit. Yeah, because no good deed in this world goes unpunished. And the kindness and the generosity and the values and the sacrifice which Europeans have made to try to bring civilization to the world has been repaid with what? Hatred, contempt, racism, hostility, suspicion. So it's like we're on a, I don't know what you call it, soccer football here, you know, the punty ball thing. Do you even play it? I could use a rugby. Oh, yeah, rugby. Yes, there we go. Australian rules rugby, otherwise known as no rules rugby. All right. Sorry? Footy? Footy, really? <laughs> Sounds like the smelliest children's show in the world. <laughs> oh, that reminds me. One other thing the Aborigines did. Well, there's many. There's, I won't go all. But one other thing that they did was, um, especially when there was trouble finding food, what they would do is they would get the, the, the uh, kangaroos and they'd get them to some oasis where they, and then they'd smash their legs so that they couldn't walk, so that they would die slowly and they'd be available for food. And the only, the only example that I could find of any kind of domestication of animals was the cassowary, caraway bird. No, if you all do it at once, I can't hear a thing. What was that? Now, does that have a cry? Anybody? It's got a good what? It's got a good kick. Well, so apparently, so they would get the chicks and they'd have the chicks bond with the local band, and then when they grew up, they'd kill them and eat the food and all that. But apparently when the, or they got these like raptor things on their feet, don't they have these huge claws, they're pretty vicious, like feminists, and they're just like, <laughs> oh no, no, because they finish you off, feminists just keep you going for tax cattle, all right. So yeah, that's the only thing they would do as far as that, as that went. Oh, I knew, I knew if I took that turn, I wouldn't find my way back, hang on, we went. That's <laughs> what happens when you don't have notes. <laughs> or you do, but you don't refer to them. Uh, oh, yes, okay. So, um, we have this universality. So, it's kind of like we're in a rugby game, right? And we're like, well, you know, we want to be fair, so we're going to pass to the other team. And the other team are like, great, now we only have to pass amongst ourselves. Because we've given up our in-group preference, haven't we? Because to have an in-group preference as a white person is to be an evil, racist, Nazi, whatever, right? Yeah, Jews can have their in-group preference, blacks can have their in-group preference, East Asians, North Asians, South Asians, yeah, oh, absolutely. You know the old thing, you know the old thing It's on the internet, you know, I am a proud black man, said the proud black man, right? I am a proud oriental, said the oriental, I'm a proud white man, said the racist. <laughs> so we've given up our in-group preferences, right? Because of universality. But universality is all well and good. But there's a little asterisk. Universality is good, except for cultures and groups that don't believe in universality. Right? That's the problem. We say, diversity is a value. So let's bring in huge numbers of people for whom diversity is not a value. Universality is, a, is a, we, we owe moral obligations to everyone. And so then we bring, up, bring in groups who do not believe that you have the same moral obligations to outsiders that you do to insiders, right? Islam is, is one of them. In, in Islam, you do not have the same, if any, moral responsibilities to non-Muslims as you do to Muslims. And even within the Muslim religion, there's lots of different sects and so on. So we're like, yeah, universality is, everybody, everybody. And that's great if everybody's into universality. 
But if they're not, you're setting up a time bomb. So the question is, how did we get to that place? When I started looking into the Aborigine history, well, it's kind of controversial, as you may have, may have heard, right? So starting in the 60s, there was this uh, conflict uh, between historians, the old school historians, the new, obviously, leftist, maybe even plain Marxist historians, and the same thing happened all throughout the West. They have this wonderful thing, this leftist historians. What they do is they wait until everyone's dead, and then they slander the living crap out of them because they can't get sued, because they're dead. And so they began going back to the 1920s and talking about, and even further back and so on, and they were talking about how brutal and, and horrifying and horrible the occupation was. And you, you all know the story of the genocide and this and the murder and blah, right? And it's a problematic case to make, for sure. It's a very, there's one estimate, you probably heard of this, that in Queensland it was 10,000 Aborigines who were, who were killed. And a professor, very good professor, started looking into the sources for all of these claims. And it's interesting what he found. He found that the estimate of 10,000 came from no records, of course, right? I mean, not only did the indigenous population as a whole not have a history of a written language, but they don't speak of the dead. It's a little tricky. <laughs> Trying to find out who died when they don't speak of the dead. Who died? No, no, I really need to know who died. Okay. So the estimate he came up with, 10,000, where did it come from? Well, what he did was he looked up, <laughs> they call this history. What he did was he looked up and he said, oh, uh, about 800 white people were killed by the Aborigines. It's probably 10 to 1 the other way. Yeah. Why not 20 to 1? Why not five to one? Why not blue unicorn to one? It's just history. <laughs> but maybe he felt that 8,000 wasn't a big enough number, so he just added 20%. I wish that was my bank account. <laughs> hey, I'm rich. So this way he came up with the 10,000, and it was all. And you've probably heard the river massacres and so on, as massacres and so on, where I saw one. I think it was the River Massacre. The estimates are that between one and a thousand Aborigines were killed. One and a thousand. How is that anything? I mean, how, how does anyone say that with a straight face? Or, you, you, of course, you all know that the indigenous population, there was the virgin soil epidemics, right? The virgin soil epidemics, they had no exposure to European viruses like Marxist, sorry, like, like, um, <laughs> Actually, Marxism is still more friendly than diphtheria. But um, yeah, smallpox and so on. Now, smallpox, this is a big thing, right? This is a big thing. The, oh, the Europeans, they brought over the smallpox blankets and they infected them. Nonsense. There was no germ theory of disease in the 18th century, 17th century, 16th century. Germ theory of disease didn't come until much later. I mean, okay, people knew <clears throat> you cough on someone and it's bad, but there was no big germ theory. They didn't know. They didn't have a microscope. They couldn't see the germs. They didn't know. Anybody know how long the voyage was? Not how long it felt on the plane, but how long the voyage was from England to Australia in the 18th century? Oh, who came up with eight months? Dude, that's really good. It's actually 8.01, no, it's eight months. So eight months, right? So if you, get, if you have smallpox and you get on a ship in confined quarters for eight months, I don't know what a smallpox is like. No, that's bubonic plague gives you the giant armpits, right? I can't straighten my arm when I do this because someone's going to take a photo. Um, <laughs> so, um, so if you get on and, and, and you're like doing whatever smallpox does, then they're going to throw you off the ship. They're going to like, the, no, <laughs> sorry, you can't infect everyone. It's time to give smallpox to the sharks, right? So you, you, there's no, you're not going to make it from, however, from Indonesia back then, it's like 12 to 15 day uh, on a raft or whatever they used. And the incubation period for smallpox is 8 to 12 days, 8 to 14 days. 
So it's almost for certain that the smallpox came from Indonesia, not from, from England. There's no way that the, so yeah, it's just bad luck. It's bad luck. And it is the price, and I don't want to blame any of the contemporary in, in, uh, indigenous people for all that happened, but it is kind of the price of, of killing all of your curious minds, of, not, of having this certainty rather than these, these questions, of having this artificial doubt called magic rather than this rational methodology called science, called reason, called evidence, is one of the things that happens is you don't learn anything about medicine. I mean, there are still, I mean, there's all these different types of magic. Uh, there's protective magic, there's love magic, there's black hat sorcery stuff. And there's this answer as to why people die, which is always bad magic, black magic, which means that you get these endless battles back and forth between these bands and these tribes. You know, somebody trips and falls down a hole, and it's like, magic, let's get whoever the magic guy is. And then, oh, we got to get that guy back, and boom, boom, boom. And that's the price. So one of the prices of, of killing all of your curious people is you don't have any progress, which means that when some other civilization that allows curious people to have a word in from time to time, it's bad. It's bad. But it wasn't planned. It wasn't. But you have historians, and I've read these, these quotes, and the historians say, well, either accidentally or on purpose, these illnesses made their way into the Aborigine population. Again, either accidentally or on purpose. <laughs> Seems like a pretty important distinction. But what they do is they put that in so that then uh, idiots down the road can just say, whites infected Aborigines on purpose. Like they just throw this stuff in like a vague qualifier and then it becomes an absolute and then it gets taught. And why, 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 why must you be taught these things? Why? So you feel bad. So you feel that it's not your land. Sorry, I'm just looking at this objectively. Aborigines had Australia for 40,000 years. Europeans have had Australia for less than 1% of that time. Less than 1% of that time. And you have made a paradise out of a desert. Now there's an uneat. I'm sorry. In forty thousand years time, you'll be there fifty percent of the time. Demographically, I'm not sure you've got forty thousand years unless you change things pretty quickly. Now that is important because there's the relationship that I think philosophy has to pride is really, really interesting. It's really interesting. I don't like collectivist pride. Like, the whites did this, and I'm white, and so I should feel proud. No, 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 you didn't. It's, it's not what you did, because when you have collectivist pride, you have the great danger called collectivist guilt, right? And that's what's being used at the moment. I prefer it this way. I don't care which group it was that produced 98% of the scientific advances from 800 BC to 1950. I don't care who it was. Could be blue-haired tentacle people. I don't know. It doesn't matter. That is indispensable. That is something to admire. You, pride, if you take pride in the unearned, it leads to laziness because you get this false ego of like, well, I'm great because I'm X, whatever it is, right? And then that means that you get a sense of satisfaction and purpose and, and achievement that you didn't earn. But if you admire a particular group, then you get something to aim for, right? You get something to achieve. It's like if you have some uncle who's a great painter. Well, you don't get to say, well, I'm a great painter too because he's my uncle. You don't get that. But what you can do is say, wow, that guys he's my uncle. He's a great painter. Maybe I can try painting too. Maybe I can be as good. And maybe what you can do is through the admiration of achievement, you can add to that achievement rather than say, I achieved it, which you didn't. But be, to be inspired by people who've done amazing things. 
can be a wonderful way to grow and to add to the beauty of what you admire. But the pride is a, a different issue. Because the issue that's happening right now, not just in Australia, not just in New Zealand, not just in Canada, throughout the West, is there's this horrible collectivist, historical, moral condemnation, which is as vile a philosophical and moral sin as anything I can imagine. Where as Europeans, as whites, we are told to feel guilty for things that other white people did hundreds of years ago, a lot of which is not even proven. We are told to feel guilty for all of the bad things that happened, but we're not supposed to feel any positive emotions for all of the great things that happened. Nothing but shame. Nothing but self-derision, nothing but self-contempt, nothing but self-hatred. Isn't that the invitation that is constantly played out to us? You, didn't, you did terrible things. Your ancestors did terrible things. Feel guilty. Give money. <laughs> We've turned into these giant collectivist, blood-stained vending machines of white guilt. Boom, boom, boom. Money, money, money. It's a shakedown. It's wrong. It's immoral. It's vile. It's predatory. And the most shameful thing that we have done is submit to shame. Without a doubt. It's not right. I didn't do it. You didn't do it. Why be blamed? You can't make collective moral judgments about any other race, can you? Aborigines are up to 19 times more likely to commit certain crimes than whites. 19 times. Can you make collectivist moral judgments about Aborigines? No. And you shouldn't. I'd be aware of the probabilities, <laughs> but you shouldn't. So even though massive increases in crime are being committed by Aborigines, just as they are by blacks in America, blacks around the world, as Hispanics and so on, can't make any collectivist moral judgments about groups committing massive amounts of crime in the present, but a tiny minority of whites who may have done something wrong 300 years ago, too bad, be guilty, give money. This is horrifying. If people are so concerned about colonialism, if people are so concerned about the massacre of indigenous populations, Here's a simple thing to do. It's very easy. There are Wikipedia pages on this. You go to the greatest colonial massacres and murders throughout human history. Sort by death count and do a secondary sort by lack of guilt, lack of remorse from the perpetrators. Anybody know what is the death count of the Muslim takeover of India. 80 million. 80 million. Anybody know how many blacks died in the Muslim slave trade? This feels like the worst auction in human history. Can I get another pile of bodies? A little more pile of bodies. Any more death over here? Any more death? 100 million. 100 million. Do you know that more white Europeans were enslaved in North Africa than were ever taken from Africa to North America? Now, why do you think that the blacks are not going to the Muslims and saying, you owe us reparations for 100 million dead? <laughs> no, they've got money. <laughs> I, I, I've seen some Sauds on yachts. So I think that they've got some money. Why? They're not guilty. <laughs> oh, thank you for reminding me. Another little data point about some Aborigines is that they find a lot of skulls of the women. Here's a, here's a good <laughs> bit of forensics for you. They find the skulls of women with these centimeter-wide depressions and concussions, mostly on the left sides of the women's head. Do you know why? Because if you're a husband, or well, I guess there's a lot of polygamy and so on, and you're swinging and you're hitting, 
with a rock or something, your wife, and it's going to be on the left side. Why is nobody nagging the Muslims about their predations and colonial invasions? Why? PC here. Anyway. So it's complex and simple at the same time. Because they'll be like, yeah, we won. Whereas we're like, oh, man. I feel so bad. Oh, what those ancestors I'm not related to did was so terrible. <laughs> oh, God. I just want to say sorry to the world. We're so sorry for science and philosophy and Shakespeare and toilet paper and roads and and the wheel. So sorry. So sorry for the rule of law. Well, actually, we are sorry for Kim Kardashian, but that's another story. That's too much butt for anyone. Except another Kardashian. Oh, it's just so sorry for everything. Why? Why? Sorry for penicillin, sorry for antibiotics, sorry for x-rays, sorry for surgery. Do you know, as, as soon as the 1930s came along when penicillin was developed, then immediately it's like, well, let's save everyone from STDs. And who was suffering the most from STDs? The Aborigines. Syphilis in particular, gonorrhea, chlamydia. I mean, it sounds like, I don't know, these names, well, gonorrhea, chlamydia, always sounds like the worst hibiscuses in the world, but as, as soon as was possible. And now look, it's like tens of billions of dollars being handed over, handed over, handed over. It's not helping them? Oh, we stole their culture. No. Massive welfare state generosity stole the culture. Culture is what happens when you need to get things done. And if you just hand out money to people, of course they go limp. It's like a muscle with no resistance. It atrophies. It doesn't help the Aborigines. What helps the Aborigines, as helps the indigenous population in North America, what helps all of us is a little thing called freedom, which we seem to have completely forgotten about in this regard, because there's this horrible deal that's made. And the horrible deal is an old deal. And the old deal is, your ancestors did something wrong, you're infected with something called guilt and shame, and if you give us money, we will let you off the hook for the next five minutes, and then we'll come back for more money, and more money, and more money. You understand? The noble savage is just the rewriting of Adam and Eve. Colonial guilt is just a rewriting of original sin. We're going to infect you with this imaginary disease, and then we're going to sell you a temporary cure for an infinite amount of money. We're going to make you feel terrible, and then we'll let you off the hook for just a few minutes if you give us lots of money. It's a kidnapping of your self-esteem. It is destruction of your confidence and your happiness and your pleasure in who you are. It is an appeasement because we seem to have given up the fight. Well, bad things happened. We're responsible. Here's some money. And we think somehow that this is going to make the problem go away. Funny thing is, when you pay off blackmailers, what do they do? They come back for more. I'm not responsible. You're not responsible. There's a huge amount to admire in the white race, a huge amount to admire in the European race. We shouldn't be selling it out for five minutes peace from verbal abuse. You guys got elections coming up? When? Next weekend? Oh, I better, better hurry up then. All right. Um, <laughs> ending great cheers. Okay. <laughs> I think it's good to have doubt. It is. It is good to have doubt. It's good to continue to ask questions. So I invite you to resurrect the ancient god of the Europeans 
which is doubt. Doubt about collectivist moral condemnation in history. Doubt about leftist postmodernists who say there's no such thing as truth, there's no such thing as virtue, but you're responsible for unproven things from hundreds of years ago, so give us money. They're not relativists. If there was no such thing as truth and no such thing as virtue, why would you feel bad for anything? Why would you accept anything as true? They say that to you to lower your skepticism, to lower your defense against lies that exploit you and destroy your countries, destroy your cultures, and destroy your future. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. It is a lie. It is destructive. It is a betrayal of the West. It is betrayal of the great glory of reason, skepticism, and the requirement for evidence and universality before accepting moral self-condemnation. Push back. Say no. Save yourselves. Thank you very much.